Chichi Acuoso. I'm the founder of Ascenti and also the organizer and founder of Female Tech Founder. What an episode we have for you today. I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce to you um, Jill Pei, who has an amazing founding story. She was the first woman to be a surgeon at arms in the House of Commons in the UK Parliament. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with them, um, the ceremonies of, of the opening of the House of Commons, there is normally one person in ceremonial dress who leads in the MPs at the, the opening of of um, the session with the mace, which is the symbol of democracy, on their shoulders. And Jill served in this role for quite a while and will be sharing her story right up to what she's doing now with MNA and their Gender Index Project. We'll also be hearing from Baha Ansari on scaling your business in the USA. An absolute treat of an episode. Do stick around and listen um, for the one tip she gave on how you can start trading in the USA today. Enjoy. Thank you, Chichi, and um, hello, everybody. As I've been introduced, I'm Jill Pay. And I'm delighted to talk to you today as founder of the Gender Index. But there is a subtext going through all this talk, and that subtext is gender disaggregated data. So just hold on to that in the back of your mind. As well as the Gender Index, I'm chairman of trustees of Coram Beanstalk, which is a literacy charity. And we support children in primary school who struggle to learn to read. And I'm a volunteer reading helper in a school in Battersea. And I've actually come hot foot from there this morning where I've been reading with my three children, which is a great way to start the day. I'm chairman of the Savitas Global Senate, which is a global network for women. And I will talk a bit more about that later. And I'm a non-exec director of MNA Tech. And MNA Tech is the data platform that powers the gender index. And I'm really pleased to see some of the MA team on the call today. Hello, it's lovely to have you here with us. But I've been asked to talk to you about my extraordinary business journey. Now, it doesn't seem at all extraordinary to me because I've been beside me on the path. But anyway, here goes. My, uh, my background is business management. And for the first 10 years, I worked in a large London advertising agency called Ogilvy & Mather. <clears throat> During that time, I got married. And I left a very exciting 24-7 job about four weeks before I had my first daughter. And I was sort of not working what I call seriously for three years. I had another daughter in that time. And I did work for my father and got involved in various community um, groups. And then when I went back to what I call a proper job, very part-time to begin with, but very full-time as it went on, that was in the private medical sector. And I worked for a consultant who had consulting rooms in Harley Street, South Kensington, Birmingham. He had properties all over the UK, had a few ex-wives all over the UK, a few offshore bank accounts. So I juggled all, all the business um, side of his practice for him. And sadly, I had to leave there when my parents became sick and I needed to be nearby for them and not in London or traveling around the UK. And that was when I first started to work in the public sector. And it was an employment and education department project called TVEI, which was the Technical and Vocational Education Initiative. And we had um, an enterprise technology centre. And the point of the project was to give students good experience of work and business so that when they left school or college, 
they were what business wanted rather than what schools thought business wanted and there's a great difference between the two believe me but the point about that was that um in this enterprise technology center we had really had leading edge technology had apple mac computers everywhere color printers video conferencing facilities to talk to colleges all around europe and this was in the 1990s so it really was state-of-the-art technology at that time and that was a, a, a project that was funded for seven years and uh, when I left there, I went to my first job in the House of Commons. And my job title was very archaic. It was head office keeper. And there's quite a lot in the House of Commons that's archaic, I expect you've noticed. But in our terms, that would be called the facilities manager. So all the things I'd done in the, you know, the previous parts of my career, managing estates, managing finance, project management, the technology, the customer service, the writing skills I picked up in advertising, all of that came together and got me my first job in the House of Commons. And I managed about 150 staff who delivered all the frontline services to members and their staff across the parliamentary estate. But actually, it was about change management. It was about changing the culture and the behaviour of this big department to try and drag it into the 20th century. And I think over five years, I did achieve that. And they were much more customer focused and I was able to develop the managers with potential. So there was a little more inspiration there than there'd been beforehand. My next challenge was to open Portcullis House, which is the newest parliamentary building. And that's on the same side of the river as the Houses of Parliament, but just across Westminster Bridge on the corner there. And in, in Portcullis House, there is a lot of technical security. So for the about 18 months before I, we opened the building, I was working with the architects, the technical guys, the security guys, and getting all these discrete technical systems into the building to make it safe without having to have too much security around there. So it was a very, very exciting project. And I worked very long hours and very hard. And then I did various other things. Um, but my last role in the House of Commons was to be the Sergeant at Arms. And I was the first woman appointed to that post in 600 years. And if you look in the chat, Natalie's put a photograph in there of me done up in all my uniform and all the bling for the state opening of Parliament. I had had the glam squad in that day, I can assure you. But if you look at the photograph, you'll see that I'm carrying the gold mace on my shoulder. But I carried that every day in the procession to from the Speaker's office, leading the Speaker down to the chamber and putting that mace on the table, and the mace is the symbol of the monarch, by the way, and putting the mace on the table so that the House of Commons was in session. But the, that was the visible part of the job. 80% of the job was security. So I was responsible for the security of the three and a half thousand people who work on the estate and the million visitors a year. And that was quite a heavy burden. And I introduced a lot of technical security. And the, the chief part of that was a contactless access control system, which in Parliament was quite revolutionary. And it wasn't too difficult to install it in a new building like Portcullis House, but you can imagine the challenges of installing an, a, um, a contactless access control system in the Gothic Palace of Westminster. But I had a very good contractor who worked for me to do that, and we did achieve it, and it did transform the security of Parliament. While I was in the House, I was also involved in this Business Women's Network, 
which was called Pink Shoe to begin with, and it was for senior women in Parliament and in Whitehall who needed a network. So it's very lonely when you're a woman in a top job, and those of you who run your own businesses will know this. So I do encourage you to develop your network and get a mentor. The two things I always say to women and men who I'm mentoring is get a good network and get a mentor. I don't think you can run a business successfully without either of them. And in, um, it's now Sabotage Global, as I mentioned earlier. And we support women entrepreneurs and business owners throughout their careers from startup to high growth. And because of COVID, we've actually gone and, and run all our events online. And we very, very quickly become this international global organization with women from countries all over the world joining us. And we recently had, um, we call it World Business Women Caucus. We recently had a caucus that the report was presented at COP26. And our idea, which you may hear about, is to have a kite mark for sustainable businesses that would be run through an app. So just watch this space. I've given them the aim to launch it at COP27. So we'll see what happens with that. So four years of being the Sergeant at Arms, really shouldering that huge security burden was enough. And I wanted to leave that role still with energy and enthusiasm to do other things. So I needed to work out what was going to inspire me, what was going to motivate me to get energized and active. And after a lot of thought and conversations with people, I came down to this, that my three passions are supporting children, women and small businesses to grow, develop and thrive. So everything I do comes under that umbrella of supporting children and women and small businesses. And I think you'll start to see how all this is actually coming together. The first small business I supported was the contractor who'd installed the or designed and installed the access control system. They're called Time and Data Solutions and they're based in Dublin. And they'd seen what I'd done in the House of Commons through change management. And their business was growing, but they weren't developing the people in the business. So their great ideas were up here, but the people were still at a different level. So I worked with, three, with them for three years to turn the business around, bring about the change that was needed. And I helped them grow the company from a UK base to international markets. And I think the greatest achievement was that we got their visitor management and access control systems into every Google office in the world. So that was, uh, that was quite a big tip. I also became involved in other things. Uh, one is that um, I'm a member of the all-party parliamentary group on women in enterprise. And these are groups that are made up of members and peers and business members of which I'm one with a special interest. And this one is all about women in enterprise. So there's about 30, 35 members who are either women business owners or they're advocates for female entrepreneurs. And there's some men in there as well, because we don't believe you can achieve it if you try and do it women only. You need the men beside you. And it's chaired by a very brave MP called Craig Tracy, who hosts these meetings with all these women. But in that group, I lead on data. So it's a data work stream, and I lead on data for that group. Through Savitas, and sponsored by NatWest, I led a programme of economic blueprint roadshows around the country. We went to every country in the UK, talking to groups of female business owners and 
advocates about what their challenges were, what their achievements were as well, what were the things that had helped them most, but what were the barriers, particularly to growing their businesses. And all the information, the data we got out of that with NatWest, we co-authored a white paper that went to government and influential corporates with all the recommendations that, that we'd picked up on the way about how to help women break down these barriers and have an easier path to grow their businesses. And you may have heard of the Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship. This was uh, three years ago, this was commissioned by the Treasury um, and they commissioned NatWest to lead a review of female entrepreneurship, again, to look at the barriers, but particularly on the financial side. And that was, it was called the Rose Review because it was led by Alison Rose, who's the only female CEO among the leading high street banks. So she's a real ambassador for female entrepreneurs and to, you know, for helping them to grow. But throughout all this work that I had been doing and had done for about 10 years, it became very clear that there was a complete dearth of gender disaggregated data. Masses of data and research on the SME sector as a whole, but no analysis of gender differences. And I worked with the Enterprise Research Centre at Aston University, with Warwick Business School, and collectively groups of us had met with the Treasury and HMRC to try and unlock this data. And really, to be honest, our progress was absolutely at snail's pace. Until in June 2020, through the Women in Enterprise group, I was introduced to John Cushing, who is the CEO and founder of MA Tech. And through him, I discovered that this data platform can produce gender disaggregated data across the whole SME sector of over 7 million businesses. It really was a eureka moment. And not only for me, but for the significant number of women and men who had been with me on this quest to get this important data unlocked. The MLA platform is a source of rich data and the company is committed to share with the female entrepreneurs and all the other stakeholders who support the growth of women-owned businesses. And so thus, TGI, the Gender Index, was founded in December 2020. It's a research study to establish the benchmark between female-owned and male-owned businesses right across the UK. And it will take the form of an interactive website that will be free at point of use. And everyone will be able to access in real time all the data that sits behind the Gender Index down to the level of anonymity. And that data will be analysed by gender, by nation, by region, by LEP, by local authority, across nearly 200 sectors, by size and age of business, by investment sources. And I give you an example, this is the one I always use, of a woman in Basildon who owns a nail shop and it's been very successful and she wants to grow her business. So does she open another nail shop in Basildon? Or does she open a nail shop in an adjoining area? Or does she own a tanning salon? Or does she open a beauty salon? Now, at the moment, it's a little bit finger in the wind to get the information she needs to make a good business decision. So she could go to the Chamber of Commerce. She could walk the streets. She could talk to a number of people. She could probably find silos of information that will take her time to discover that she can ill afford. 
With the gender index, she will be able to sit in front of her screen and get all that information at once in one place. So this will be revolutionary for women business owners. But it will also benefit a lot of other stakeholders as well. The national government, for example. When the um, Rose Review reported, the, the government set a target to have another 600,000 female-owned businesses by 2030. And at the moment, they can't judge how much progress they're making towards that. They could possibly do a piece of research, but that would be static and it would be on a sample. But with the gender index, they'll be able to measure it month by month, what progress they're making towards that massive target. For local government, we're already working with a group of LEPs in the south of the country. And they're using the data to identify the female-owned businesses in their areas who are ripe for growth, but maybe need some support and don't know where to get it. So that the LEPs can see where to offer that support and point them in the direction of investors who are interested in their sector. And for investors themselves, um, this will be a rich source of measuring the impact of their investments and looking at investment opportunities that maybe they weren't aware of before. And we're talking right across the funding piece here. So we're talking to high street banks, private banks, angel investors, VCs, the whole, the whole gamut of investment is analysed within the data, data index. And for researchers, um, we're already working with leading business schools, Warwick for England, Strathclyde for Scotland, uh, Queen's Belfast for Northern Ireland and Cardiff for Wales. And they're doing the academic part of the research for their country. And then they will provide the narrative for that within the first issue of the gender index report. And we're talking to London Business School and we're hoping to get them on board to do the overall UK narrative. Because by having the business schools providing narrative, it gives it integrity. And we do see this very much as a public sector, private sector, academia collaboration. Um, for corporates, the gender index will be useful for them, looking at supply chains, how they're doing in their supply chains, how's the diversity level going up and down. And other organisations like the Federation of Small Businesses, Fund for North, Women in Tech, Scale Up Institute, the list is endless. So the gender index will benefit all these stakeholders and the business media, because it would just give them instant information to write about. And we hope very much they will write about the gender index itself. So our aim is to publish in March 2022 to launch the interactive website and there'll be a small printed digest that we will use as a teaser to lead people to the website. And then we shall publish regularly thereafter, showing trends and growth and impact. But all the data will be available in real time, live, for people to access it on the website. So it is a very exciting initiative. It's, it's real time, live gender data at the click of a mouse. So I think you can see how this brings together my three passions of supporting women and small businesses and the children who will be able to read and use the gender index when they open their own businesses in the future. Um, I'm Bahar, I'm an attorney here in the US. Uh, I specialize in business immigration and I mostly work with IT founders who want to move to the US. 
I do work with other professions within the business world as well. So top executives, whether that's in marketing, financial, whatever it is that they do in the company, there are immigration avenues for them. But my specialty is helping foreign business owners launch similar businesses in the U.S. Um, in this case, you know, a lot of what we're going to talk about isn't really regulations. It's about planning your life. It's about thinking of your life the same way that you think of your business. You know, we, we, uh, as, especially as tech founders, we're really comfortable with the ideas of design thinking and, you know, planning sprints and planning the next year and doing financial projections and really being uh, type A's with our businesses. But I'm not really quite sure if people do that in their personal lives as well, at least in, in my experience of working with founders, they don't think of themselves as the product and their life as what could be a business. So uh, when you're thinking about moving to another country or you're thinking about really what you want to do in your life or with your company in the future, it's, it's important to one, you know, not have that imposter syndrome that Joe was talking about. It's knowing that these opportunities exist and that you can do it. It's possible for everyone. It's not reserved for the millionaires and the billionaires or people who are funded or they have these incredible ideas that have never existed. What really matters is how you can contribute to society. And that comes in two folds. One is your passion. So this has nothing to do with immigration law, but it's something that we discuss to plan a life. Like, what's your passion? And how could you bring that to life in the US? And understanding the why that they want to move here, at least for me, of somebody who's going to represent them, who's going to hold their hand through this decision in the next year and beyond, is really important to understand this. Um, the thing that I hear most uh, from foreign founders that they're surprised to uh, think through the U.S. immigration in that way is understanding that they can create this move for themselves without anybody's help. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean, we can't do anything without anybody's help. You know, we're social creatures. What I mean by that is you don't have to work for another company. You don't need anybody to sponsor you. You don't need anybody to hold your hand. So there is a liberating aspect of it, but that also means that it's on you personally to create this for yourself. So as, as freeing as it might sound, it could also sound like a lot, a really heavy weight to, to pick up. But once you learn how to break down these decisions, just like you would in your business, you know, not every day you don't wake up panic thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing because you've created some sort of task list. You've created, you know, what you understand your mission and vision and your goals of your company to be. So every day you're doing tasks that aligns you with that goal in life. Immigration and moving and opening a business in the U.S. is the same. That's the big goal that we have in mind, whether that's to accomplish that in a year or two years, it's important to have that goal, get over the imposter syndrome and start planning for it. Some of the things to consider in this plan is, when I mentioned earlier, understanding why you wanna to move to the US is really important. That knowing why is important in, in a practical sense too. For example, understanding what the tax implications of this decision could be. So if your big goal is to move to the US and sell your company, that big move might not be the most 
the greatest idea depending on where you're coming from. If your plan is to exit the company knowing the tax implications of this decision and the tax rates of, of corporations in the US. So when you're thinking about a move, start thinking about a few factors. Like I'm, I'm just gonna give you a few of my basic ones that I usually talk to people about in the first two conversations. The first one is you don't have to be in the US to start selling your product or services in the US. And I think that comes as the biggest surprise to everyone because they think that they need some sort of immigration, you know, relations or an American entity or that clients will talk to them and they can't call people. And none of that is true. Uh, so understanding and strategizing of how you would scale your business to the U.S. without being here is likely the first most important part before you even decide what you want to do after you arrive. Because it's also a business decision to test that market, to understand there is a market for you before you spend four or five years of your life, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions to get your business going and understanding that the product you created has no fit in the US market. Maybe it's very specific. Maybe, for example, it's legal related and it's, it's built on UK's legal system. So getting that first few clients is super important. Um, having a mentor could, could be really helpful in adapting the language and how you approach the market, but don't let that stop you from trying, from trying to sell into the US market. This is also important when it comes to the immigration case, once we get around to actually putting it together to show that one, you have some plans of how you're going to grow your business in the US and that those plans are based on data and facts because you will have to write a business plan, you will have to create projections and you will have to prove it out to USCIS, United States Citizenship Services, um, of what you've actually done and what you intend to do in the US and with concrete information. Um, so that's number one, just test the US market and don't be afraid of the US market. The second one is to protect your IP. So if you're going to do any business in the US, just keep in mind that you should protect your brand and if it's some sort of technology that you've built that needs to be copyrighted or patented, protect it too. Because if you start playing in the market and you start publicly disclosing your ideas, that could hurt you in the future, whether you've chosen to be in the States or not. We do that in reverse too for American companies if they want to reserve their intellectual property rights in other regions, like the UK, for example. You can simply hire a foreign attorney from that country who could do this for you without having an entity here, without having any immigration status here, or without being here to sign it. So this is all possible virtually. And now there are very many online options that are completely affordable. So protect what you've created and, and get in the mentality of understanding that your creations are yours and they deserve to be protected. Um, Besides that, I will get into a few different kind of visa avenues that are available if anybody's interested in that, but I do want to touch on the tax, uh, the taxes a little bit deeper that we talked about earlier. I had a client a few years ago who, um, whose dream, like whose personal dream was always to live in the U.S. 
And he ended up scaling his company from the country that he lived in, in the US. He raised about a hundred million from Goldman Sachs. He acquired another company here. So he was building this huge business, but he never really one tested the idea in the US and he never connected his dream of living in the US to his dream of being a business owner in the US. So having this disconnect between those two ideas could become really disastrous because he spent five or eight years in the US, had a family, raised his family. As his personal life was growing and he was becoming happier, his business wasn't doing the same. Um, after a while, he did find a huge market for his for uh, internationally in other countries. But again, he was scaling the international market through his US entity. When, it, when time came to selling his company, he had to postpone that decision. Well, he made the executive decision to postpone the sale decision for three years, move to a neutral third country to lose his US tax residency before he sold his company to avoid the taxes. He wasn't a US citizen. He didn't intend to live here long-term. He morally didn't see any reason why he should pay the taxes into the US if those benefits have come from other markets and if he wasn't gonna live here long-term to take advantage of those. So that's a little bit of a really extreme story, but it's, it's understanding the consequences of your decisions and how could they affect you personally and they could affect your business personally that are more important than to think about, I want to move to the US, I'm gonna hire an attorney and it's just a bunch of forms that I'm going to put through. So this session was about scaling your business in the US. I'm a business immigration attorney, but Almost nothing that we talked about is about immigration law. It's all about general business laws and about personal coaching and about mindset and about design thinking. And this is how I want to leave you guys to think about immigration and global mobility as we come to this post-COVID world, because my dream and what I see for the world is a lot more open borders and a lot more freedom of movement for people. Because choosing where we live is a much bigger decision than just, you know, where I can make the most money or where the weather is great. I think we're more complex creatures than that. And accepting that when we make these decisions is going to make the process much easier. Because once you know the data, once you understand what your goals and plans are, then you can be agile and plan and change and test and plan and change and test. So having said that, I want to talk about two or three of the main immigration uh, you know, benefits for business owners or founders. Uh, I found these three to be very surprising to people. Um, you know, I do, I do work pe with people from the UK, which makes it easier because their, their primary language is English. And you guys do have some of the same um, immigration benefits in your country. But again, I found these to be really surprising for people. The first one is an extraordinary talent visa. And I think most countries are getting around to implementing that because we do want to steal and take the best from everywhere for our own country. And uh, this one is very interesting because it's all about personal accomplishments. Majority of the case is, around, is built around what your personal accomplishments have, have been. So if you've won any awards for in your career, for your profession, for products or services that you've created, if you're a member of any organization, 
that has, uh, you know, higher levels of requirements of who can become a member in that professional organization. If you're invited to judge, to be a judge or a jury for competitions for other people in your field, if the media regularly covers you or talks about you and your work or your company, that's another category to prove out. If you've ever received any certificates of achievement, of gratitude, or anything from work that somebody's done in their career, that's also really helpful. And the last one are letters of recommendations from people who know you personally or people who you know who know your work or people who are professionals and experts in that field that you are. So keeping in mind, let's say I'm a founder and I want to decide, I want to move to the US in a year or two. Knowing that these are the types of evidence that I need empowers me to approach people or take on projects or take on events that are helpful in this way. Like for example, founders are so busy, they don't think about awards. Usually you're found, but most awards are actually through nomination. You can self-nominate or somebody can nominate you. So knowing that you need this evidence in two years and now having these Facebook ads that keep popping up, there's, there's this competition going on because now we talked about it and you are going to get ads. You will look at those ads and competitions differently because now you know you can participate and you may win something and it might not have been important in the grand scheme of things when you're trying to survive as a founder. But knowing that if you want to survive as a founder and grow as a founder, you take the extra time for yourself to, to create these accomplishments. Another thing is if you come across people who, for example, in this, in, in this session, if I'm a professional who has created some data analytics tool and I've come across Jill, this would be a great opportunity for me to network with Jill, for me to build a relationship with Jill, for me to show what I've built and eventually, or even within that meeting, ask for a letter that describes her professional opinion based on her experience. If this is what she has done, she has an eye of, of understanding what type of technology might be ne necessary or helpful within her field of expertise. And she does have an expertise to be able to comment about uh, what you've created or you know, about the product or the service or you personally from, from her interactions with you. So this letter of recommendation becomes a part of your case in the future. And whether that's a visa case, that's a green card case, or you, you decide to apply to a PhD program, or you decide to raise funding, you now have this letter of recommendation that you can use for any purposes. It's a little bit old style to think about it, but these letters, you know, when we meet other professionals, they don't know us and they don't know our field of expertise. Like a USCIS officer isn't an expert in data analytics. They see cases from all sorts of fields. So these professional comments and opinions and the forms of letters are extremely important for them to formulate their perspective of where you stand in your field in comparison to other people, in comparison to the market, in comparison to other companies and innovators. So uh, they don't take a long time to write, but people do take their time with it. So if we do want to submit a case in a year, starting to ask for letters now, one or two a month, that's what you will need to create a case and to be done with it. So at any point, if you decide to move, start planning a year or a year and a half before and start working on it from a year and a year and a half before. 
The second way, this, this first one was my favorite that I explained that for extraordinary talented people. And again, most of the criteria that are covered is more helpful to implement in growing your company and your business versus just an immigration idea. So you can take this immigration framework and design your life around it and design your business around it. And the goal is to grow your personal career and your business primarily and focusing on that goal will not only hit your immigration target, but you're growing your business along the way in your own country as well, because you're preparing for the next step. The second option that's available is for people who are already business owners and there's no requirements of how big the business is. So if there, it's a small business and it's been one or two owners, there's no restriction of why you can't apply, but essentially it's launching a branch or an affiliate of the same business that you're doing within the same area that you have been working. You must have at least been in operations for a year when you apply so that's the only restriction and the second one is to maintain both countries businesses operational so they both should remain open so coming back to what we were talking about about planning let's say you'd never owned a business before but you do want to live in the u.s in the next one or two years there's nothing to say that you can't open a business now it's not cheating this is this is these are free public information that's available you can open a business now, you can work on scaling it, and then you can open the US branch and transfer yourself as an employee to the US branch. So most people, when I talk about this type of business, they think about a multinational huge company that has branches all over the world and they're doing another one and it's gonna take millions of dollars in cost. It's not. You want to earmark 10 to $15,000 for the process, uh, I don't know how much it costs to open an entity in the UK. If it's anything like the US, it's really simple. It's not costly and it's not complex. So there is some investment that you would make in your legal process in the US with the cost of that and the UK side, but your biggest commitment will be your time commitment uh, to work on putting the case together and to work on growing your career to show that you're on some sort of trajectory. So whatever your goal of your business was, that you're on your process of achieving it, whether that's a revenue goal, whether that's a sustainability goal, a social impact goal, whatever goal you set, your job is to prove that you're working towards that goal. And last but not least, it's an investment type of visa. Fortunately, US and UK have a treaty that allows uh, an immigrant to move to the US and start a business. This is usually for a brand new business or something that people are purchasing. And out of the two or three benefits that I talked about, this is the only one that requires capital. So there should be an, uh, a pledge of 100 to 150,000. It doesn't need to immediately be spent but it does need to not be in your personal individual control. So as long as it's committed to the business, put in an escrow account, put in the business's business account as a separate entity, that qualifies. And there are many other ways to immigrate to the U.S. And you know, at the moment, U.S. is considering a startup visa. We're one of the probably only developed countries that is uh, you know, a desired global destination for people who doesn't have a startup visa. And Senate is working on that. We've been hearing about it for the last couple of years. 
once that passes, it will create a, a specific benefit for founders who want to launch businesses in the U.S. who end up raising VC money in the U.S. And that could put them on track for, for visa or green card purposes. The two or three visas that I went through for you are exact alternatives for that, that I personally have experience working with small founders and qualifying them under these visas. So even though there is no startup visa, startup founders fall very neatly under these categories and can prove out cases and still go on to get green cards and eventually US citizenships under these three that I talked about.